Welcome to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD XM160, presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. This week's Grand Rounds comes to us from the University of Arizona College of Medicine and is titled Respiratory Management of Children with Neuromuscular Diseases. Thank you for coming today. So we have Dr. Corey Danes. She did her medical school and residency at St. Louis University. She did her fellowship in pediatric pulmonary medicine at the University of North Carolina. Go Tar Heels! <laughs> no, that's right. She then worked at Cincinnati Children's until 2006, when we were lucky enough to recruit her to the University of Arizona pediatric pulmonary team. She's the director of pediatric pulmonary bronchoscopy program and a co-director of the Tucson Cystic Fibrosis Center. She's currently involved in grants with the NIH and Cystic Fibrosis Foundation and numerous clinical studies. She has many publications, book chapters, and presentations. She's a fantastic teacher and even better pediatric pulmonologist. Please give a warm welcome, Dr. Corey Danes. Today, I wanted to cover a subject that I, I haven't seen in the Grand Rounds recently. We could spend many, many talks talking about children with neuromuscular diseases. And obviously, there are many aspects to the care of these children that I am not going to talk about today. So. I'm not going to talk about the heart, and I'm not going to talk about their neurologic decline. I'm going to focus on the respiratory management because, of course, this is all about pulmonary. And these are kiddos that you're going to see in your clinics and in the hospital and in the emergency room all the time. So I want you, as we go through this, to really think about the children that you're seeing in your own practice. I have nothing to disclose. I didn't put a slide in here about that, but I don't have anything to disclose, although if anybody is willing to give me any offers, we can talk later. And these are my goals, as I just said. I want you to understand the respiratory manifestations of these children. I want you to be able to assess the respiratory problems that these kiddos are having when they show up in your office. And then I want you to know what your treatment options are and how to manage them long term. And this is kind of what we'll talk about. I'm going to go over the different neuromuscular dystrophies and diseases that you will see, talk a little bit about the manifestations in terms of how the respiratory pump works and why it fails in these kids, how you assess that, and what your treatment options are. Then we'll go a little bit into complications and speak briefly about the kinds of outcomes that we can expect. The point of this is to show you the muscles of respiration again and to take you back to physiology one more time and think about the muscles that you use when you breathe in and when you breathe out. And these are only the ones really associated with the respiratory cage. Doesn't include your tongue and your palate and your upper airway, your glottis, all of which, of course, are also involved in respiration. But when you think about breathing, inspiration is an active process. And the major muscle of inspiration is the diaphragm. So the diaphragm, of course, inserts on these lower ribs, and when it contracts, it pulls downward, and it opens up the thoracic cage and creates that negative vacuum so that the air rushes in. The other major muscle of inspiration are the external intercostals. These are the ones that are on the outside. And so when they contract, they pull the ribs up and out and they basically increase your intrathoracic diameter and cause you to take a deeper breath. You will notice that there are accessory muscles of inspiration, and these are the ones you're kind of always paying attention to when you look at these kiddos in your clinic, and you say, you know, they're working because you see their sternocleidomastoids or their scalenes, and you're watching them contract those actively, and so you think that they have increased work of breathing. Exhalation is usually passive. So in most cases, what happens is that after you've increased your intrathoracic diameter and all that air is rushed in, you just 
relax the muscles. And the diaphragm comes back up, and the intercostals relax, and the rib cage returns to its normal shape, and all of the air moves out. But of course, even in normal individuals, you can go into phases of active breathing, where if you're exercising, if you're exerting yourself, if you're trying to cough, you are going to use your muscles of exhalation as well. The principal muscle here is now the internal intercostals. And what happens, of course, when these contract is it pulls the rib cage together down and in, so closing that thoracic cage. If that's not enough, then the abdominal muscles get into play. And your rectus abdominis and your obliques and your transverse abdominis start to contract as well. And what happens here is it decreases the abdominal cavity, pushes up on the diaphragm, and forcefully helps the patient to exhale. So these are the muscles that are in play with children with respiratory diseases. And so as we go through the physiology, you need to be thinking about the pump and how the pump is failing. The diseases that we talk about grossly can be divided into myopathies and into neuropathies. The myopathies are the things you think about when you think about muscular dystrophy. So here we've got Duchenne and Becker muscular dystrophy and some of the other less common muscular dystrophies. You've got storage disorders and mitochondrial defects. The storage disorders, of course, causing you know, accumulations of the mucopolysaccharides in the muscles and weakening them. You've got disorders of the myoneurojunction. Here's your myasthenia gravis diseases that affect the transmission here. From a neurologic standpoint, classic progressive dystrophies include things like spinal muscular atrophy. The types there, of course, are associated with the severity of the disease. Motor neuron diseases like ALS are thankfully not horribly common in pediatrics, and we don't see them a lot, but they can be progressive and very devastating for our adult population. Polio, we don't see much. Peripheral neuropathies can affect central disorders, like Charcot-Marie-Tooth and Guillain-Barre. Multiple sclerosis, again, we don't see very often in the kids. Spinal cord injuries of any sort, so anything that affects the spinal cord, an injury or an infection can cause dystrophies or trouble with the neuromuscular pump. Spina bifida, and of course probably the most common and the thing you're going to see in your office the most are your kiddos with cerebral palsy and static encephalopathies. And yes, these are neuromuscular disorders. You don't think of it necessarily that way, but definitely CP is a neuromuscular disorder. So as we think about what happens from a respiratory standpoint, I'm going to talk globally about the, these four manifestations. And one and two are kind of interrelated. The first is, of course, the pump fails. So you've got insufficient respiration. One manifestation of that is that there is nocturnal hypoventilation. And that can often be the first manifestation. But I want to talk about that separately because of the way you handle it compared to the way you might handle just general insufficient respiration. Your cough becomes ineffective when your pump doesn't work, and that is a biggie because it obviously impacts everything from illness to quality of life. And then bulbar dysfunction, and here we're talking about the upper airway muscles, they're affected as well. So the muscles of the mouth, of the pharynx, of the palate, and of the glottis are all affected as well. And so thinking now through those categories, when you have a child that has insufficient respiration or ins insufficient ventilation and you're looking at them in the clinic, these are the kinds of things you're going to be looking for. Are they short of breath? Are they having rapid, shallow breathing because they're not, they don't have a good enough tidal volume so they're, they're making up for their minute ventilation by breathing rapidly and shallowly? Do you see those accessory muscles being used? Are they using their belly and having some paradoxical breathing? And then, of course, they may be desatting. They may have retention of carbon dioxide. And these are the things that you are going to be able to assess. So what's happening here is several things. The first is that there can be just primary hypoxia because the pump isn't working. But let's think about the pump. So as the muscles are weak, you don't create 
enough intrathoracic pressure to get a really good tidal volume in. And the manifestation of that is low tidal volumes, you don't get good size, so you're not getting all of that air into your alveoli, and the alveoli are contracting on you. You're getting atelectasis on a chronic basis. Then once you've got atelectasis, it decreases the compliance of your respiratory pump. And so now your muscles are having to work harder just to do their regular job, and you start to get muscle fatigue from that. So these symptoms can be insidious and progressive, and if you don't start handling the tidal volume, then it's gonna get worse on you, even if the muscles are not getting weaker in and of themselves. You often see this in stages with somebody who's got a progressive muscular problem. So it may start out that they're fine, and they look fine in your office, and they're not having any of those symptoms, and their pump seems to be working well, but then they get sick and they have an illness, they get a virus, and that may be the first sign that you see that they have some insufficiency, that things aren't working the way that they should. And then it may progress to not just being when they're sick, but being when they're asleep, and then from there into daytime, even on a chronic basis. So that leads us into what happens with nocturnal hypoventilation. From a symptom standpoint, you should ask. You know, when they come to clinic, you talk about their sleep. Ask them how they're sleeping. Kids who are having nocturnal hypoventilation are restless sleepers. They don't sleep well. They're tossing and turning. They're sleepy during the day. These are the ones that are falling asleep in their classes or falling asleep on the bus or when they get home easily. They may be complaining of morning headaches. They're going to be tired all the time. Their parents are going to say they have no energy. And then it really does start to affect their cognition, so it's going to affect schoolwork. They're not gonna be getting as good a grades. They're not gonna be able to concentrate and get their assignments done. It's gonna affect behavior. These children can be aggressive, they can be emotional. It can really start to interfere with their relationships with the people around them. So you may start to see those subtle things happening as well and it can very much be a sign that the sleep is just is impaired. So again, this is one of the first manifestations when the pump isn't working. You may not see it during the day when there's active respiration, but at nighttime you're going to see more of it. Why is that? Well, it's not only that the muscles of inspiration are weak here, it's because you've also got upper airway obstruction. So the upper airway muscles are weak, and that's going to manifest itself more during sleep. Some children with neuromuscular diseases also have central processing defects, and so there are going to have some central aspects to this, some central hypoventilation, which is going to exacerbate it in some children. And all of it's worse in REM. And you want them to get into REM sleep, the really restful stages of sleep, but it's really going to affect their ventilation when they're in REM sleep. So then as we move into the category of ineffective cough, what you're going to see with these children is that they're going to be the ones that are retaining secretions in their lungs. And this can be what's down there naturally, just the mucus that's there, but it also is going to be aspiration, that they're not able to control the secretions that they have in their upper airway. These children are going to have recurrent pneumonias, they're going to have colds that linger, they're going to get sick and just have it stay on for weeks and weeks on a time. They may get persistently infected. They may not clear infections the way that they should. So let's think about cough. What happens when you cough is you take an even bigger breath than normal. So this is going to be like a real tidal breath. You're going to, not just a tidal breath, but a big inspiratory effort. You're going to try to increase your intrathoracic cage as much as you possibly can. And then after you've done that, you've actually extended your expiratory muscles. So you've given them, you know, the ability to contract harder and faster to aid your active exhalation. So after you've increased your intrathoracic diameter and you start your forceful expiration, what happens is your glottis closes. 
And that just increases the pressure inside of the respiratory system tremendously. And after about a fifth of a second, the glottis opens and the forceful air moves out. And the flow of a cough should be around 12 liters per second. That's a very, very fast flow. And as it does that, it helps move the secretions and you clear them and it, it, the turbulent flow inside the airways does that. So in someone who's got neuromuscular disease, all of that is wrong. None of it works right. So the first thing is your pump doesn't work, so you can't create that really great breath and get a good tidal volume in, first of all. So the, the muscles of exhalation don't get lengthened the way that they should. So when you are trying to actively contract those muscles, they're not as lengthened and you're not going to get as forceful of an active exhalation as you should otherwise. Then the other thing that happens is that your upper airway doesn't function here. So your glottis is weak. So you can't always make an adequate closure of the glottis to build up that pressure before the exhalation. And then when it opens, it doesn't necessarily open as effectively as it should either. So none of it works right. And so the cough is weaker with lower flows and doesn't make that turbulent flow inside the airway and disrupt the mucus so that it can move appropriately. So then moving on to bulbar dysfunction and what happens here, when the muscles of the upper airway are not functioning appropriately, you have lots of symptoms and signs. These are the kiddos that are having trouble with their swallowing. They don't swallow appropriately. They feel like food gets stuck. They don't necessarily have normal speech. They can't chew the way they're supposed to. They have weak chewing. Their facial muscles are weak as well. They may have nasal speech because of the weakness of their hypopharynx. And they often have a protrudent tongue, which affects their feeding and the synchrony of their feeding as well. So we've got our different disorders. We know we've got um, insufficient respiration, we've got hypoventilation, we've got our cough, and we've got the bulbar dysfunction. So now when you see these patients, you need to know how to assess them. And in any patient who's capable, one of the first things you want to do is try to get a pulmonary function test on them. And some pediatricians have the ability to do this in the office, not a lot. We can certainly do them for you. You can refer them to the respiratory lab, and they can do it for you. They're all very well versed in doing this. But it's an important assessment for what's going on with these children. And when they come to see me in clinic, if they're capable, they do it every time, no matter how old they are or how progressed their neuromuscular disease is. We'll return for more from this session of Grand Rounds Nation after a short break. <laughs>